The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome back to the program. We've been on a two-week hiatus for the holiday season. I hope everyone had a wonderful time. This is Joe Schuldenrein, and this is the initial episode of a renewed run for our series, Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. I want to thank the uh, producers of Voice America for their decision to forge ahead with the archaeology show. Their decision, I understand, was based on uh, very successful survey numbers, and I'd like to extend my appreciation to all of you who have found our program worthy of interest. And I'm excited, actually, to have the opportunity to advance the message of 21st century archaeology going forward and to update you on what's happening in the field. Again... (coughs) Our message is that archaeology, while exciting and somewhat glamorous in the vein of Indiana Jones, as we've discussed in previous uh, programs, remains nevertheless a productive field and one that calls attention to contemporary issues as well. In this introductory segment for the next half year, I would like to review some of the aspects of the archaeological profession that may not be familiar to the listenership. My reason for uh, doing this is actually a flurry of inquiries from both the public at large and especially some younger people, folks who are actually in high school or going into college and some even contemplating careers in archaeology, who are curious as to what it takes to be an archaeologist and what the major issues are that are fashioning our profession today versus what they might have been in the past and what that might mean. So I'm going to start with some personal background on training that I think has some significant, <coughs> excuse me, some significant bearing on the archaeological career generally, as certainly as insofar as it affected me. And then we're going to talk about the changing world of this profession. So I have entitled this uh, program "Reflections on an Archaeological Career: Looking Backward, Moving Forward." And I think you can get sort of a bird's eye view of of what this career is all about, what this profession is all about, where it was, where it's going. This is a very dynamic period for archaeology. And I just want to bring this to you by way of introduction uh, as to where we're eventually going to go with upcoming shows. Well, I broke into this field in the uh, early 1970s. I, I know I'm dating myself here. And I was basically a wide-eyed <coughs> graduate of college 
without any real focus, but I had had some previous experience in archaeology, and I thought it would be a very, very interesting potential career. And so what I did is what most archaeologists do. They go to graduate school, and they get a rigorous training. Now, how rigorous that training was and is was certainly not very clear to me at the outset. And uh, for a variety of reasons, I applied to a uh, very rigorous department that was the uh, University of Chicago, which at that point in time and, and, and even to this day remains one of the outstanding departments uh, for archaeology and uh, under the roof, as it is in the United States, of anthropology. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, there were actually two pathways into studying archaeology at the time and there and, and today, as it was, because a lot of these structures don't change. But there was the Oriental Institute at the university and the Department of Anthropology. And the Oriental Institute was focused on classical archaeology, Egyptology, the study of the ancient Near East and questions related to that. And anthropology offered sort of a wider perspective we're looking at archaeological issues that were beyond the Middle East that extended into the New World and to issues of human origin and or human origins and other more uh, widespread domains that archaeology extends into. I eventually uh, worked my way into anthropology, even though I started with a Middle Eastern focus, and I began a very, very rigorous academic career, <clears throat> which involved a tremendous amount of preparation. A, uh, a career path, a, an educational path that would take me from a master's degree into a PhD degree. And that entire training took uh, a lot of twists and turns and ultimately resulting in my getting a PhD after 10 years. 10 years at that time was considered uh, not a very uh, long time to do it, but it, it was certainly a very, very strenuous and very involved career path, uh, training path. And as I was developing an interest in archaeology, I also found that, like many other professions, there was a series of specialties that would allow you to focus in on a variety of elements of archaeology that uh, would be the cornerstone of one's particular interest. Now, in my particular case, I think I made a judicious uh, decision that I would look at a method and not necessarily a region. In other words, a lot of archaeologists focus in on particular regions that they're interested in. I, as I said before, I was interested in the Middle East. It was, it was a major uh, interest of mine, the uh, the emergence of civilization, the Egyptian civilization, the Sumerian and Assyrian civilizations in Mesopotamia, the Fertile Crescent, that's what captured my, my imagination at the time. And very quickly, as, as it happens for very many young graduate students and potential scholars, their interests change with the times. And uh, one of the elements that I found myself getting very intrigued by was a specialty called geoarchaeology, which we've discussed in uh, several previous episodes. What that means is the application of geological methods to archaeological excavations and looking at the relationship between the earth in which the finds are located and the finds themselves. And there's a relationship here that has implications for the types of environments that people lived in and the types of uh, environments in which the artifacts and the structures survived in. And that was a way of sort of putting together the environment on the one side, culture on the other side, and trying to look 
at the emergence of cultural phenomena in, 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 in a more comprehensive perspective so that you could relate the environment to people and how these uh, interactions manifested themselves in a variety of situations. In other words, uh, people would settle in particular areas because the environments were favorable and that's why you would find particular artifacts or artifact sets or settlements or houses in those particular locations. Most basically, for example, you would find a density, a high density of early archaeological sites and settlements on the margins of floodplains because floodplains are fertile areas. Those are areas that are productive for uh, subsistence resources and people would tend to settle on them. And, and by looking at the types of soil that the artifacts and the residua of human occupation was located, you could put together some information on how frequently the floods occurred, what kinds of crops might have been grown by the people who lived there, and why the artifacts survived under the deposits in which they were, were located. So this was an aspect that just intrigued me, and it also seemed to me to be a very, very practical outlet for doing archaeology, because very quickly on I found out that while archaeology is a very glamorous and sexy kind of a, a career, it sounds that way, uh, getting a job in this field was pretty tough, and, and uh, that was true in the 70s. Uh, as much as it is today, it's perhaps even more difficult uh, today because of economic situations and the times. And um, as a result of all of this, I figured that I would have a secondary skill, which in this case was geology, that might allow me to, uh, to retreat to a safety valve if the whole archaeology deal uh, didn't work out. So um, I decided that this would be an excellent way to, to move on, and, and uh, I, I got a very, very... Uh, novel training in geoarchaeology through my advisor, to whom I'm indebted to this day, a gentleman by the name of Carl Butzer, who was actually one of the founders of this field. At the same time as this was going on, there was a movement, uh, as we have discussed again in earlier programs, to develop a, uh, a, an approach to archaeology that would expand beyond a traditional academic setting. And that was, of course, the initiation of the National Historic Preservation Act and the application of the National, uh, National Environmental Protection Act. And as a result of these two phenomena, archaeology expanded into a very extensive domain that involved the requisite performance of archaeological surveys and excavations to satisfy an increasingly regulatory environment that was related to both environmental resources and cultural resources. And those two things, the, uh, the focus on a method and the expansion of the archaeological domain worked hand in hand for me. And as I finished my archaeological training, I actually found myself being increasingly interested in commercial archaeology and applied archaeology. Uh, as I said, the academic world was, was actually starting to contract a little bit. I found myself working for a company, um, which was a wonderful experience, and uh, I was able to expand my skills to a commercial and applied context, working with one of the few firms at that time that did this type of work. When I did all of that, I found also that the geological approach was looked upon by the regulators in the archaeological field as being a very efficient way to address the potential 
uh, preservation of archaeological sites in particular settings. In other words, if you had a, a, an understanding of where sites might be because of the relationship to the dirt, you would also know where the best locations to look for them would be. And as a result of that, you would be much more efficient. You would save the government money if they were involved in a an archaeological project or if they farmed it out to a firm such as mine. And they found that this was a very, very effective way of doing archaeology. So all of a sudden, the skill that I had developed turned out to be very practical, not so much in crossing over to another field, but actually within archaeology itself. And that was a very fortuitous uh, turn of events. As a result of that, I worked on a variety of different projects, and I got to be a project director, and I was uh, gradually segueing into the management area of archaeology as well. And I got a very, very nice perspective on how archaeology was done in North America and also in many other parts of the world where heritage preservation, ecotourism were just starting to get off their feet and people were starting to appreciate yet more efficient strategies for doing archaeology and looking at historic preservation. So my career just sort of took a twist and a turn over a period of about uh, certainly 10 years uh, since I started my graduate school and moving into the actual applied workplace and uh, eventually leading to my breaking away and forming my own company. And on that note, we will move to break and I will uh, continue to track my own career and uh, expand that, those observations into our archaeology applies commercially and academically to the contemporary world. We'll be back. News, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com. Explore the power and beauty in yourself and in others. Tune in to The Stacy Stern Show, enriching you. Every week, Stacy Stern will connect you with men and women who are living and working from a place of passion. Stacy's guests include successful authors, filmmakers, actors, experts, and leaders. You'll hear what inspires each of them, and you'll be turned on to great films, books, and new media. Tune in to The Stacy Stern Show, enriching you, Tuesdays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. It's all about action. Scores. Taking a look at the NBA tonight. Highlights. He's broken loose. He's at the 30. And headlines. Big trade in the NFL this afternoon. When you are looking to talk sports, look no further than the Voice America Sports Network. We bring you some of the biggest names and all the sports news you can handle. Whether it's basketball. Off the glass. Football. Come on. Golf. Racing. Or the Olympics. We've got you covered. We'll even cover tailgating. Tune in to the Voice America Sports Network. It's all things sports. Streaming live. 
the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra georg.com. Now, back to the program. We're back. Uh, thanks again for joining us. This is Joe Schuldenrein. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, and I was sort of tracking my pathway into getting into applied and commercial archaeology, uh, having completed my Ph.D. degree at the University of Chicago in 1983, uh, joining the uh, corporate world to some degree, to a large degree, for another seven years, where I learned the ins and outs of uh, performing uh, geoarchaeology and archaeology in a compliance setting, and at the same time maintaining an interest in a variety of uh, archaeological problems that were of a special interest to me that I had cultivated in graduate school, and that was specifically working in areas that I had gotten my Ph.D. degree, which was in the Middle East, and so I was able to sort of fuse these interests the uh, applied interest, the academic interest, and perform my skill as a methods person, which, again, I emphasize is a very big advantage when you're training for archaeology in, in, in the contemporary age. And I was able to do the types of projects I wanted to, as well as to perform very interesting types of archaeological research in a compliance-based or a commercial archaeological context. So it was, it was the absolutely best conflation of of the different types of venues in which to perform archaeology and yet uh, preserve and maintain uh, interesting research and applied skills. So once that had been done and once I had worked in the corporate world, I decided that I really liked doing this and um, I decided that I would break away and actually start my own little company, which I did in 1990. And I formed a firm called Geoarchaeology Research Associates in 1990, and uh, we've been going strong ever since, uh, by and large performing geoarchaeological kinds of work uh, all over the world now in uh, compliance situations across the United States and North America, and in more research-oriented ver- venues, and now in, uh, in heritage tourism kind of venues in various parts of the world, specifically in the Near East, South Asia, Europe, and North Africa. So this is the type of trajectory that I followed, uh, and to some degree, uh, the type of trajectory you will take is based on your own personality and the types of interests and uh, attractions that bring you into archaeology in the first place. I think that one of the problems that we face in archaeology, as we do in very many other interests, is that in the academic training that one undergoes, in archaeology, uh, you are taught basically how to be a researcher. They do not teach you how to function in the real world. They don't teach you what the challenges are, certainly in working in the commercial environment. That has changed markedly since I was in graduate school, so that now if you're starting to get a career in archaeology, uh, you will be rapidly familiar with the world of uh, commercial archaeology because 
according to the latest estimates, 90% of the archaeology that is being performed in, in the United States is on a commercial is in a commercial venue. Uh, traditional academic research has shrunk and will continue to shrink, I think, very unfortunately because of uh, the economic situation and uh, because of the increased focus on practical applications in a world in which you can no longer choose where you want to work, but the, the place where you're going to work is, is an area where you have to perform your craft. And thanks to the National Historic Preservation Act and NEPA, which is Environmental Protection Act, the uh, that venue is basically where development takes place. In other words, you will be almost forced to practice your craft in an area that's going to be developed. And that's one of the cardinal rules that one should keep in the forefront when one does archaeology. In other words, you can no longer go out there and say, well, I'd like to do an archaeological project in, uh, in northern Arizona to look at the emergence of lake prehistoric cultures. What you may be able to do is uh, respond to a request to perform that work in an area where a dam is being placed in northern Arizona and you will be able to study precisely that type of problem in an area that will be developed. In other words, you won't have as much control over your research, but you'll have a huge opportunity to uh, to uh, uh, apply your skills in a venue that is placed in front of you and it's basically up to you to figure out how to maximize the information yield from that particular situation. And uh, it's a challenge. It's a challenge that archaeologists of generations past didn't do because they effectively were allowed to pick the areas that they wanted to work in, and they went there and they applied their craft, and they would normally be funded by a, uh, a National Science Foundation grant or, a, a, at that time, a, a variety of other grants and, and uh, funding agencies that simply don't exist anymore. Does that mean that academic archaeology is dead? Of course not. It isn't, and we'll be talking about that a little bit as well. But it's certainly the direction in which archaeology is, is being uh, taught and the way that people are being trained has, has undergone a 180, 180-degree turn since, uh, since I first began, although I, uh, well, I should, shouldn't. I should qualify that the training, the formal training hasn't changed as much, but certainly the applied training has. And at this point, I would like to step into what is involved in training the archaeologist in, uh, in the contemporary world. And let's, let's step back from that. Archaeologists, like many other professionals, have to go to graduate school in order to uh, perform their craft. Now, there are in commercial archaeology a series uh, a series of workers who have uh, fundamental bachelor's degrees that are hired to do the standard excavation. They don't need advanced degrees, but certainly if you want to continue and advance in a career, a, an advanced degree is certainly necessary. If you want to design a project, if you want to develop a research strategy, if you want to put together research reports and uh, be on top of how a project is run, you will certainly need a master's degree, and increasingly you will need a Ph.D. degree. Uh, in the United States, <clears throat> the traditional training is in a department of anthropology. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
uh, overseas, uh, there are actually departments of archaeology in which uh, the training is actually streamlined towards an archaeological perspective. That's a little bit different, and that emerges, uh, that, that dichotomy between what's going on in the United States and what goes on in Europe and other parts of the world is simply based on the fact that the Europe's are more, more vocationally oriented, the Americans are more oriented towards a liberal education model, and as a result of that, um, you have sort of a broader perspective of archaeology, viewing it as a component of anthropology, uh, sort of under the umbrella of what does culture mean. You look at it from an archaeological perspective, you look at it from a cultural, contemporary perspective, it's a little bit different, but that is the umbrella, whereas in Europe and elsewhere, in Asia as well, um, archaeology is considered its own discipline, where you're simply looking at the excavation and the uh, reconstruction of ancient cultures as a standalone kind of a situation. That doesn't mean that anthropology is excluded, but it's certainly not uh, a necessary component of your training. As a result of all of this, um, the uh, career track, the training track for archaeologists in the United States is very, very long. Uh, as I said, I took 10 years. Uh, other people have taken anywhere from 7 to 15, in some cases longer, and in rare cases less. But uh, it's, a long, it's, a, it's a long pathway. And um, it's also becoming a very expensive pathway. And the jobs, while they can be nicely remunerative, they are certainly not going to put you in the class of doctors and lawyers and, and folks who are really in the upper, upper echelons of uh, of the earning scale, and you have to be aware of that. So as a result of all of this, you will be uh, in school for a very, very long time, um, and uh, I think you really have to have sort of a passion for what you do. Uh, archaeologists do have a passion for what they do, and uh, these negatives notwithstanding, archaeologists are very, very happy with their careers and, and, and very dedicated to their careers, and, and they tend to work well into their 60s and 70s and, and tend to be very active people generally because of the lure of the outdoors and, and uh, the sh constant sharpening of your mind when you're dealing with archaeological uh, challenges and questions. I mean, ultimately, it's like a big detective puzzle to put together ancient cultures and understand how environments and people interacted in the past. And it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful experience, and, and I have found that archaeologists are extremely happy with what they do. Um, again, I will emphasize, and I can't emphasize this too strongly, that if you're planning a career in archaeology, you should anticipate going into the commercial sector. That's where this world is moving. Uh, it's, it is an area of archaeology that is expanding constantly. It's moving from North America extensively outside into, into an international venue. Uh, heritage management, ecotourism are um, venues that are becoming increasingly practiced in many parts of the world, specifically in third world areas where those will become, where those are the backbone of economies in many cases, like for example in Mexico, in Peru, in Egypt, in uh, those parts of the world, uh, tourism is a huge component of uh, national economies. And as a result, there is a, a, an organizational infrastructure for archaeologists. Archaeologists can find employment in these contexts and do very well. 
increasingly, uh, those positions are being filled by uh, native peoples, which is certainly the appropriate way to go. But uh, folks from the U.S. certainly have a, a tremendous opportunity to undertake applied research in those venues and to explore new uh, horizons in terms of applying their craft uh, in the commercial sector, and I think that this is the wave of the future, and it's certainly nothing to be scoffed at. You can do your uh, research, you can achieve your goals uh, by simply converting your skills to where they're most in demand, and that would be in heritage tourism. Again, the important issue to stress is the places you do your work will be selected for you, and uh, there's not much you can do about that other than to um, to make the mess of the situation, and if you have developed the uh, research skills in graduate school that you require, you will certainly have that opportunity. Uh, you will have to have applied skills. Applied skills, as I had indicated before, include such areas as geoarchaeology, looking at the interface of geology and uh, culture. Uh, faunal studies, the study of animal bones is very relevant to uh, reconstructing human diets and landscapes. And again, those are critical for understanding uh, why people lived where they did and why certain, uh, what types of diets uh, people had when they were living at certain points in time. Pollen studies or ancient vegetations are, vegetation communities are very relevant to understanding how environments changed over the course of time and how people ate and, uh, and, and, and continue to, to subsist through time and how those, the, those uh, adaptive skills changed as well. Uh, when we come back, I will talk to you a, a little bit more about the increasingly significant role of high technology in archaeological research. It's a vista that is now really getting widely applied uh, to archaeological settings in part because there is, as I said before, this increased focus on d getting archaeology where development occurs and not simply going out and doing your own thing, which uh, increasingly you will not be able to do as an archaeologist. And uh, we'll get back to you on that uh, when we come back after these words. Stay tuned. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio. Because shift happens. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. 
go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rock and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to the Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. Hi, we're back. This is Joe Shulden, Ryan, uh, Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Uh, I was talking about the types of skills that one should actually acquire when doing archaeology. And again, I, I, I can only, uh, I can't emphasize strongly enough how necessary it is to acquire very, very technical types of skills in the performance of archaeology, there is currently, and, and, and this is uh, a very important point to make to uh, the students who are interested in pursuing advanced degrees in archaeology, there is a revision and there's a movement to revise uh, the training pathways for for completing your master's and PhD degrees, um, which which is increasingly being focused on um, trying to understand method- methodologies for performing archaeology in a high-tech ter- high world and in a world where information systems is having such a huge imprint on every facet of professionalism and, uh, and vocation. And uh, this is a revolution that goes hand-in-hand in, hand in developing skills for uh, actually practical applications. And I was talking about geoarchaeology as being um, one of the facets that, that, that we look at integrating uh, landscapes and archaeological discoveries, uh, the finds and the artifacts under the ground, and, and, and why the dirt is as important as the artifacts itself. We had also talked about uh, looking at, at uh, animal bones as re- being reflective of ancient diets and ancient environments because animals are very sensitive to environmental change and the preference for a particular type of a- animal by a population certainly dictates its dietary habits. The same with vegetation. Again, indicators of environment, indicators of uh, food choices. In addition to that, uh, what, what's widely applied right now is geographic information systems or G. The understanding of a variety of different uh, mapping tools that will able, enable to you to look at various different types of projections um, that give you information on soils, uh, the coincidence of soils in particular archaeological sites, and these will enable you to establish correlations between why people lived on certain why people's 
archaeological sites are associated with certain types of soils. Those would clearly provide indications of one soil being more fertile than another and one place being, uh, for example, if you had a topographic map, an elevated area would be more likely to house an archaeological site and geographic information systems allow you to condense all these complex layers of mapping into uh, a puzzle that is comprehensive and allows you to establish correlations between, say, the environment and the places in which people settle and how those things change through time. So you have a variety of different types of tools that allow you to do that. Another aspect of archaeological discovery is called ground penetrating radar, and that allows you to sort of see under the ground by using a series of electromagnetic uh, and uh, technological um, pieces of equipment that look into the ground by bouncing signals off of buried uh, anomalies in the ground, for example, a stone or a or an impression of, of a, an archaeological processing feature would indicate a, a, a disturbance in the consistency of the ground, and you would pick up that signal and you would know where to dig rather than simply just uh, knocking out a hole every every 15 or 20 feet. And those, again, enhance efficiency and allowed you to read what's underneath the ground without necessarily putting in holes. And as a result of these high-tech uh, uh, probing uh, pieces of equipment, you are allowed to actually get a map of what's going on underneath the crowd of the ground, <clears throat> and you can actually put in selective excavation units to see what that anomaly or what that breakage in the subsurface looks like, and you can determine if it's an archaeological uh, feature or whether or not it's a natural feature. And this is a type of um, the strategy that is widely used now when uh, you simply can't go around um, and, and put holes every which way, every which place and uh, test for, for, for an archaeological site. An additional advantage of these types of skills is that they are applicable for other uh, areas of professionalism if the archaeology uh, track doesn't work out for you. So that if you have acquired these specializations, um, you can use them in a variety of different types of professions. Uh, I will guarantee you that a large percentage of people who go into archaeology find that the climb is very, very steep. And once they start seeing exactly how challenging this is and they don't have the passion for doing it um, or a variety of different circumstances that would mitigate against the selection of this career, then uh, at least they have a skill set that is readily translatable into, into another profession. And you have acquired this type of training and it will benefit you no matter what pathway you, you select to follow professionally. And another key issue here, and one that I, I don't think we, we ever really learn in graduate school, is, uh, is, is the need for interpersonal skills. Um, corporate archaeology requires uh, a tremendous amount of communication because uh, we do archaeology in an applied venue in many cases where we are not exactly uh, held up as heroes or uh, participants in, in, in the environmental compliance process because uh, in, some, in some cases we're perceived as impeding development interests rather than assisting them. And that's just part and parcel of the regulatory environment. Uh, right now I think that that, uh, that kind of mentality is starting to dissipate. I think people are starting to warm to archaeology as they see that there's a tremendous public relations benefit 
to this profession because uh, most people are very, very interested in archaeology so that if, for example, a controversial uh, construction is being proposed for an area and it, and affects, uh, and it affects a variety of different uh, populations or demographic groups, uh, the archaeology very often stands as a sort of a mitigating factor to, uh, to, for, for a development interest to um, provide a positive spin on what it's doing. Most classic cases are with, uh, with gas pipelines. Gas pipelines are not necessarily welcomed in many communities, but you will find that um, the archaeological work that are being done by the, uh, by the pipeline industry, which accounts for a huge percentage of archaeological discoveries in North America and across the world, is uh, one of one of the PR benefits that the company can actually uh, proudly boast of, and they do it very effectively. They're starting to do it very effectively, and uh, they are winning support. We were on a couple of pipelines in which uh, muse- small museums were built, and they certainly helped to uh, assuage the antagonism between uh, various communities and the development interests. Keep in mind, most people want the gas to go to their houses, but they simply don't. It's, it's the NIMBY mentality, not in my backyard. But with an appropriate and, and a positive spin on the archaeological element of this, you'll find that, that, that communities do get swayed, and they do, uh, they, they do uh, take pride in, in developing a venue for heritage display and preservation and uh, the pipeline companies can very often point to what they're doing to recover uh, archaeological remains and in many cases even change the pathway of their lines to uh, accommodate uh, preservation interests for example in the cases of a uh, an Indian burial ground or an African-American cemetery or a historic church, those types of concerns will uh, actually <clears throat> be taken into account seriously by the developing interest, development interests, and as a result of that, goodwill is fostered, and a lot of hostility can actually be um, and be accommodated. Uh, the hostility can actually be dissipated because of the public relations efforts to which archaeology has been put. So again, there are uh, getting back to the original issue, which is the fostering of communication skills. There's nothing more important than that, especially when you get into management positions and you're doing uh, you're, you're uh, trying to be a liaison between the development interests, and the communities in general. So those are the sorts of things they don't necessarily teach you in graduate school. I wish they did. Uh, they're starting to make a uh, um, make inroads in, in, in trying to develop these programs. Certainly when I was in school, they didn't do that. But now there are media courses that should go hand-in-hand hand with uh, archaeological training, as far as I'm concerned, so that, um, so that when we get out, we get our degrees, and we know all the technical aspects of archaeology, we don't uh, sort of flutter into the uh, to the real world without knowing how to deal with communities and how to communicate our message, which is very often difficult to communicate to the outside world. So uh, as a result of that, I think that uh, there are now initiatives being taken by universities, uh, by graduate programs, and by uh, fostering partnerships between corporate archaeological entities, typically uh, private 
private companies who do this kind of work and graduate schools to bring uh, internships online that will allow um, students pursuing their advanced degrees to actually get into the workplace and learn as they do. And uh, that was something that didn't exist many years ago, but now certainly the need for practicality and application is being fostered. And I think it's, uh, it's, it's, it's coming across pretty nicely. It's uh, still not where it needs to be, but we're in a, we're in a period in archaeology where there's a tremendous amount of change in training. Um, many members of the uh, professional community have sort of rallied around restructuring of archaeological training programs. And at this point in time, it certainly seems to be taking effect. It's, it's not been an easy struggle. And in many cases, uh, the ac- academic institutions sort of... Uh, uh, stick to their old ways, but I think we're making dents in that. And at this point, uh, we're developing sort of an equilibrium between trying to strike the right balance between professional training and applied um, skills that uh, that we're making a lot of progress. We'll be back. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Frankly Speaking About Cancer is a program designed to empower survivors and their caregivers to deal with the social and emotional challenges of cancer. Drawing on resources from wellness communities throughout America and abroad, the show will invite physicians, researchers, nurses, social workers, patients, and caregivers to share their advice on how to live a better life with cancer. Join host Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community, Tuesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. What would you do if you knew that you could not fail? The Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basili is a radio forum for some of the world's most influential people in the fields of health, wellness, and human potential. Dr. Pat brings together and introduces visionary scientists and futurists, environmentalists, educators, business leaders, inventors, filmmakers, authors, artists, mystics, and healers who inspire and support individual and collective growth and positive cultural shifts. This award-winning radio show empowers the listening community to be the change they want to see in the world. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific for the Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basili, Radio to Thrive By. You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. Hello again. We're back. This is Joe Schuldenrein again. Um, we are discussing archaeological training and archaeological practice and how that's changed in the past 30 or 40 years. And uh, I've used a couple of examples from my own training. Uh, Certainly when I started out, uh, I had no idea that I would end up uh, actually running an archaeological firm that specialized in a certain facet of of archaeology. Um, I had no idea. I thought I would certainly um, be an academic and a professor somewhere in in a university. And uh, I'm very happy with the way things turned out. It, It certainly... 
uh, conform to the types of skill sets and, and the type of uh, the needs that I had personally to be involved in, in, in the larger world and to communicate the message of archaeology it suited me just fine. And, and I think that archaeologists, young archaeologists going into grad school, should not be surprised as to where their careers will eventually end up. I think the overwhelming chances are that a trained archaeologist, whether he gets a master's degree or a PhD, will work in a setting that he had not anticipated and will probably be very happy doing it. Um, because this world is very dynamic and, uh, and, and the ways things worked in the past will certainly not be the, the ways that things will work in the future. Certainly, uh, as I said, the most important issue here is that um, archaeological venues will change and that you will no longer do archaeology where you want to do archaeology. You will do archaeology where development occurs. That is the age of sustainability. That's the message that has to be emphasized going forward. And uh, even some of the major volumes on archaeology that are coming out right now are stressing the issue of sustainability and the limitations of where archaeology can be performed. You have to sort of resort to your own wits to figure out how you do that archaeology most effectively. And that is the training that you will get in graduate school and you will hone as you are exposed to the realities of the world. Now, there are certain aspects of archaeology that uh, are practiced. There are specialties. There are a variety of different types of archaeology uh, that are practiced all over the world. And I just want to review a couple of these so that uh, people understand what types of archaeologies will be practiced in the future, certainly my projection, which is certainly not um, unequivocal. I mean, people will, will differ with me unquestionably, and I'm sure I'll hear something about this uh, program from my colleagues. But in any case, there are certain archaeological venues that, that are traditional um, domains in which archaeology is practiced, and I want to go over these sort of uh, relatively quickly. There is classic archaeology, early civilizations, which is the uh, the sexy stuff you read about in books and movies, the Indiana Jones stuff, the Incas, the ancient Egyptians, um, the the Aztecs, the uh, hubs of civilization in China. Um, those types of studies have changed as well. Traditionally, that type of work, people who did that kind of work, focused on monuments on uh, epigraphy, on reading traditional texts and, and, and looking at uh, historic architecture and monumental architecture, the achievements of kings. Well, that, that form of archaeology has actually undergone a significant amount of transformation. In the 60s and 70s, there was a, a refocus on not necessarily looking on how the kings lived, but how the people lived, and that, uh, that was a perspective. It was called processional archaeology archaeology, environmental archaeology that took hold in North America and was very slow to filter out into the classical archaeological world. It did eventually. And um, now even that has, 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 has skyrocketed and there's a lot of changes in that, um, in the way that that type of approach has, has uh, taken over in the classical world. And again, I'm talking about the past 5,000 years of uh, civilization uh, which incorporates writing and, again, monumental architecture. But in addition to looking at how the, the people lived, there is an emphasis now on the antiquities laws, and there are major issues involved with uh, how do we repatriate 
uh, artifacts that were actually taken about, taken from uh, third world countries like Egypt, Mexico, places like that, and uh, taken to museums in, in, in North America and in Europe. And uh, there is a movement now to return these artifacts, and it's a, it's a major issue that archaeologists getting, are getting involved in, and I think rightly so. These antiquities certainly don't belong to the Europeans. They, they sort of belong to the uh, civilizations and cultures and their uh, progeny and uh, the people who, uh, who are living in those countries. And that's become... Uh, an archaeological interface with, with legal issues. So uh, repatriation has become a very big issue. Also, heritage tourism will become a very significant issue for archaeology as time moves on because the backbone of some of these countries like Egypt, like Mexico, or the economic backbone is related to tourism and tourism is, is relation, rela- uh, related to antiquities. So this will be a burgeoning field in the years to come. Paleoanthropology is the study of stones and bones of early people. And this is a sexy area of inquiry that seems to get sexier all the time. People are interested in learning as to uh, human origins and uh, how we can develop the evolutionary uh, trees and how we can establish connections between where the people people originally came. We know folks are out of Africa and they dispersed, but this pathway and the evolutionary models are getting refined to a tremendous degree because of advances in uh, DNA research and in actual archaeology and uh, the focusing of, of where we can find uh, sites and how we can date them to their to their antiquity which now extends well into the millions of years. And this is an area of inquiry that is, is, is still very hot, and which will move along. And, of course, compliance archaeology, which, as I say, uh, is where most archaeologists will find their workplace, uh, that's not going anywhere. Uh, if anything, more efficient scientific methods of tracking archaeological sites will be involved. Urban archaeology, uh, in, in my case, we work extensively in New York City where uh, our ability to read what's underneath the ground, beneath the maze of developmental interest, gas lines and utility corridors, we are able to actually penetrate through that with very systematic and refined subsurface probes, which are very difficult to put in the ground, but we can do it. And we can reconstruct the layers of occupation from actually the ancient shorelines that existed in some of these uh, urban areas through the various historic occupations in New York City, through the Dutch and British and early colonial uh, periods. And we can put together relatively nice uh, sequences of what happened based on relatively limited excavations. So this is an area that will be uh, something that, that... that will blossom in the future and uh, will probably get increasingly more scientific as time goes on. And finally, I think uh, you can emphasize more that archaeology and the search for relevance because archaeology and the uh, methodologies that we use now, geoarchaeology and scientific approaches are giving us tremendous indications of how environments and climates changed in the past. And that in the age of global warming is a very, very fruitful 
pathway for research and one that will get funded in the future because we are able to establish reliable climatic models and their effects on populations as we go forward. So I think the future is very bright for archaeology, and I think that uh, as time goes on, we will be increasingly stressing in methods of scientific research and scientific approaches as archaeology goes forward. I think it's a, a very, very uh, rosy future in many ways. Uh, be, be prepared for a very long haul and possibly a costly haul as time goes on, and, and I would suggest that anybody preparing for a, a future in archaeology has to really be very passionate about it and uh, I think the rewards are great and uh, I think that if remuneration is not your only concern in life uh, you can look forward to a very very pleasurable and passionate experience as you pursue archaeology going forward. So uh, I think that as we move along, we are going to have a variety of different programs that will highlight and underscore where archaeology is going, uh, certainly in terms of a variety of different types of projects that various colleagues of mine have been performing. And uh, we will also present a series of profiles of these practitioners and how they got to where they are. And they'll share their experience with you going forward. We are looking forward to the next few episodes, actually it's about 26, that we're going to uh, uh, portray in the next uh, in the upcoming half year. And we look forward to, uh, to expanding our listenership and getting a lot of interesting questions and uh, observations as we move along. So on that note, I want to thank everyone for listening. Look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks very much, and we'll see you next time. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.